every year at the uh, Platypus Convention, we have a Sunday morning Platypus plenary um, where we address uh, the history of the project, the current state of the project, and uh, really the raison d'etre, the rationale for the project going forward. Um, so this year, uh, we're handling it a little bit differently than in previous years. Um, one of the reasons for this, uh, so first of all, I myself, Richard, and Spencer will be speaking on the Platypus Plenary this year. And one of the reasons for this is that uh, we have, um, not at the convention today, not at the members meeting today, but rather in uh, the next week or so, a uh, competitive election for the ORCOM slate, uh, the Organizational Committee um, slate. And uh, the reason for this is that um, Lucy has brought a petition to the membership, uh, which, uh, because it wasn't presented um, with enough time before the convention, is technically a recall uh, petition. Um, and it's a recall of the current ORCOM, which would have been up for re-election. Um, and between the two slates, the three members who overlapped are myself um, as president, uh, Richard and Spencer. And so in part, um, we're going to take this opportunity to, uh, in a sense, uh, justify our presence on both slates. Um, the other two uh, members of, of, of the, the ORCOM in contention are uh, Ben and Pam, who are the uh, current uh, or com that would be up for re-election, um, and Lori and Teo would be the new uh, slate that's being proposed. Um, and we'll get into uh, issues regarding uh, those members' uh, representation on the ORCOM in the internal members meeting later this afternoon. Uh, we'll set aside some time to discuss the, the, the two slates. Um, but anyway, we're going to take this opportunity now uh, in the plenary session, the last public or semi penultimate public session of the convention. So I'll give a public president's report after a break after this session. Um, just to uh, give our vantage point on the history of Platypus, and not only the history of Platypus as an organized project, but in a sense the history leading up to Platypus. Um, so I want to say something about, uh, well, a couple of things about uh, the project just straight away. Um, why we have the uh, leadership structure that we have, why we've uh, structured ourselves in the way that we have organizationally. Um, one of the conceits of Platypus as a project, uh, which is a conceit of our organizational structure, it's not merely a conceit in terms of our uh, raison d'etre and our self-understanding, but one of the conceits of our organizational structure is that we're a pre-political project, meaning uh, we don't pretend to be a political party. Um, and therefore, uh, we are self-consciously organized more as a business than as a political party. Um, very self-consciously, we're a project. That's how we describe ourselves. Um, and so we're more akin to uh, any kind of enterprise venture, um, for instance, a journal, uh, for example, or another example that comes right to mind is the Frankfurt <coughs> Institute for Social.
Institutional Research in Frankfurt, um, you know, which had a director and had a board and had a, a foundation, these kinds of structures. Um, and so what that means is that uh, we're kind of a peculiar uh, formation in terms of being a membership-based organization that nonetheless is organized like a business venture. Um, what that means is that the members are the shareholders in the organization, and the organizational committee is more akin to a board, you know, a kind of corporate board. Um, in other words, it represents the shareholders. What the ORCOM is, is a representative body for the membership as a whole. And one of the things that we need to justify, uh, the three of us, is how we represent the membership and the project in a peculiar kind of way. Um, uh, differently from uh, perhaps uh, the way other members on the ORCOM might represent the membership. Um, so that said, um, we're going to, like I said, talk about the prehistory a little bit um, and how that prehistory feeds into uh, the history of the project to date, um, six years going now, um, and what that might look like uh, going forward. Uh, what our prognosis is and perspectives going forward are uh, with respect to this. Uh, the order in which we're going to speak, uh, Richard's going to speak, then Spencer, and then myself. Um, and we're going to try to cover different aspects of um, what we bring together, you know, the, in the sense of why there are three of us, the triumvirs, if you will, <laughs> um, and what we individually bring to it, uh, as well as collectively. The tricycle, okay. Um, <laughs> leave it to Richard. <laughs> With a, a beautiful image. Um, all right, so I'll turn it over to Richard now. Okay, so I guess that <clears throat> I'm doing the free history or the image of the Cambridge Institution, the prolegomena. So this is, I, I guess that I'm doing the, to some extent, the prehistory of Platypus, or I remember in the first volume of the Cambridge Institution history is called the prolegomena. Is the, is the stuff that goes before. Um, and obviously, I have, uh, I was one of the founding members of Platypus. So I've been with Platypus from the beginning, but I was with sort of the path to Platypus in that I've known Chris since 88, 1988 or 1989. I'm not sure exactly. When we met, uh, we met in a class in American foreign policy given by Ekbal Ahmad, one of my favorite teachers in Hampshire, fairly well-known and radical Pakistani uh, friends of all sorts of people on the left, and a very personable character, um, very much representing, uh, I would say in some ways, the, the best aspects of the new left, but not in a doctrinaire way. Um, the, the context um, that I want to convey and that I, is basically the question of the Spartacist background. So my own personal upbringing was sort of very much a conventional sort of like parents were liberal Democrats, not, not at all radical. Um, I personally come from a well-off bourgeois background. Um, Nothing in particular, um, except, so to speak, a personally a kind of 
thinking on the taken-for-granted liberal assumptions would push me towards radicalism. It wasn't a personal circumstance. It wasn't particularly people that I knew a little later. Um, so my political background, sort of time I got to college, was, I would say, a kind of taken-for-granted not obviously new leftism, this is talking about the late 80s, Reaganism, etc., but but sort of a liberal moving kind of steadily leftward into a kind of graduate new left sensibility, not like realizing the stupidities along the way and sort of critical of that, sort of fairly sophisticated, but not not sort of making a fundamental break with those assumptions. So very much within a kind of, not, not that I was really a Chomskyan, but that sort of sensibility. The sensibility that is sort of everywhere with us in many ways, maybe even more pervasive and taken for granted now. Um, and I read, read a fair amount, so I was not politically naive. I would say both Chris and I were uh, somewhat politically precocious, and so we were quite well aware of the world. Both of us, uh, before we had gotten to Hampshire, had already encountered Trotsky and Trotskyism. Demonstrations, we like, read radical papers, probably Chris more than I. I'd, I had uh, read like the Isaac Deutscher biography, which I came across by accident. Strand, this was high school friend, and I remember that I borrowed money that I spent all my train fare on the Isaac Deutscher biography and then I had to borrow money from my friend to get back to the suburbs. Um, so that was sort of the, the mental framework. I also uh, fell in with a group of people who were kind of interested in Palestine solidarity. I was already interested in Israel, Palestine, stuff like that. And so there was this network of people I knew around the Palestine Solidarity Group. Um, I actually was already aware of the Spartacist League by then, but I'd never, I became aware of them when I went with a friend to a DSA conference in New York City. <laughs> well, and there was a Spark, Spark selling literature outside. And I started talking to this young woman, who's a Spark, and um, yeah, she seemed I'm sorry, Richard, can we have you stand by the podium? People online can't hear. Oh, ish. All right, this is going to be a problem for us later. Okay, so, so, so uh, what, what I, I remember like reading the literature and, and sort of being impressed by it, and what I remember being particularly impressed by was that it seemed different from other leftist literature, and among other things, it acknowledged the other existence of other leftist groups and sort of Columbus-like things. And the most leftist literature you read it's just the same sort of boilerplate, capitalism is bad, whatever. And there was a, an RCP guy the other day talking about how he, he wished that there had been more moral indignation about like, the crimes of U.S. imperialism. And this was a private conversation. Of course, I, I didn't contradict him, but sort of my personal reaction is that moral indignation repels me. I mean, not, I, mean I understand moral indignation has a place, but I'm not really interested in the left for moral indignation. I, I, what I want really from the left is a way of understanding the world, not to be enraged at it, easily to be enraged at it, find injustice and things like that. 
And so what I actually liked about the Sparks was the way they differed from sort of the traditional boilerplate that was most of the time. And I ended up sort of then when Chris was there, and there were a bunch of people who were basically Chris's friends, except for me. And uh, Chris had sort of started a young Spartacist group at uh, Hampshire. And I kind of joined. I wasn't really a member. I mean, I think I was formerly a member for two days. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to sell the paper. And, it was a very short period of formal membership. And this was only in the youth group. You know, and I, I got into this sort of joking argument about they, they, they wanted to know what my political differences were. They didn't understand, well, too lazy to sell paper. <laughs> you know, it's just your personal takes or Make me nervous. And I didn't want to say <laughs> so, you know, I said, well, I think I've become a centrist. <laughs> and, and so, you know, this was, it was interesting. I said, well, you know, in all the years of our political process, we've never met anyone who claimed to be a centrist. <laughs> Just to explain this a bit. So, a centrist is someone who says they are and thinks they are a revolutionary, but is actually a reformist. All right. So, in other words, you can't. Identify as a centrist in the way that in his usual puckish manner tries to do. So you know, I said, well, yeah, I think that I I waver between you know revolutionary and reformist politics. I'm not really a revolutionary. Send you lost soul, but maybe you know, in a revolutionary crisis, I could be one. It's not a revolutionary crisis. The words are Menshevik. So the interesting thing was that the Spar said to me, um, "Well, if you know you're centrist, you must be a left centrist. That means you're like more of a revolutionary than a reformist." And I said, "No, I think I'm actually a right centrist." So I had this sort of semi-jocular, semi. There's actually some content to that, though. In other words, to say that if you think you're a centrist, you must be a left centrist. See, built into that is something that got disparaged yesterday, which is the definition of the left as a matter of consciousness. It is. Absolutely. Right? And so, therefore, I'd like to say, well, if you think you're a centrist, that's already a kind of self-critical perspective, and therefore puts you on the left of it. Right, so we need to pay attention to these kinds of things. Anyway, <laughs> absolutely. So, so um, you know, that that was sort of it. Um, but uh, the and then then you know, Chris was a much more disciplined member. Always a much more disciplined member. Um, and took it very seriously. And Chris can talk about his own experience. Um, I mean, one of the, the curious things about the Sparks, which I found ironic, was that despite their like self-consciously proletarian manners, that I, I actually felt that they were like the most suspicious of Chris, who was like from a genuinely working-class background, whereas I, who was from a bourgeois background, actually saw as the like a more serious recruit, even though I was clearly the less serious one. Um, so the left can't recruit the working. Yeah, that's the bottom line. <laughs> that, that's the other aspect of the lesson. So, um, 
Well, I mean, just to sort of describe a little bit more of my personal narrative. So afterward, uh, in, uh, in 1994, um, I met at a, it was a public debate between Seymour of the Spartacist League and Ernest Mandel of the USAC uh, about basic issues in Trotskyism. And it, you know, brought out all the sectarians in New York City. It was at the, the, the public library. In the and at this, uh, an old guy stood up and asked a question that, I won't get into the details, but it, it was sort of something was interesting. And I went up and talked to him, said, that was an interesting question. We, we started chatting. And he invited me over to his house in Brooklyn. And we became very close friends. And this man, uh, his name was David Weiss. Would be over 100 now. Uh, so he was already in his 80s then. Um, was part of the founding generation of American Trotskyism. Uh, his brother, actually, his younger brother, Mary White, whom you might come across in readings, and was actually one of the leaders of the uh, Socialist Workers' Party and then left and formed something called the Committee for a Revolutionary Socialist Party with his wife, we're known as the Weiss Krispies. <laughs> um, and but David stayed in the Socialist Workers Party, and then he was expelled in the Barnside Purge of '83, and then he was with Solidarity. He basically stayed with Solidarity, but he wasn't very active. And but he 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 consciously considered himself a Trotskyist to the end of his life. Socialist action, though. Yeah, socialist action. That's yeah, right. Socialist action. I, mean, I misspoke. Socialist action, not Solidarity. Very different. So and and. Through him, I met like members of an older generation of Trotskyists, and I had a feeling of an entirely different, including some neocons. Right, that's including one member. I mean, I remember one particular interview because he had been a filmmaker and made films, and he was working on a Trotsky film that might or might not end up being finished. At one point, we, we actually, I, I mentioned this in the Trotsky lecture, so we went to see um, uh, Al, Al Watts, Albert Glotzer, uh, who actually wrote a book of his memoirs. So Glotzer was one of the guards of Trotsky. He was part of the you know, original lieutenants of Shackman. Uh, and he, he became one of the Founding Shackmanites, and he went with Shackman all the way to the right. So, you know, in 1972, he supported uh, Nixon for president, and so forth. And I, I, you know, and I was there, and I would see these debates between, uh, you know, Dave, I, so David and uh, Glotzer, and there was a big debate in which they rehearsed the Canon Shackman split in 1939 and 1940. Um, and there was something, I mean, you know, this is something like, both fascinating and charming, and the administration, second administration of Bill Clinton, about like, seeing people debate like defense of the Soviet Union in 1939 or something. Um, and so, what what I wanted to, what I'm telling you, these anecdotes, is that that, that part of the experience of the left is a directly political experience of that position. But it's also, in some respects, a cultural experience. And it became very aware of sort of the left as a culture. I, mean, I would say a dying culture. 
I mean, and the, the parts of the left that I most liked were parts that were disappearing. So I was very aware that in all sorts of subtle, unconscious ways that, for example, the older generation of Trotskyists, the ones who had been radical in the 30s, seemed to me to preserve a quality that the people that then they had recruited, the new left generation, lacked, and that the generation coming after that lacked even more. So there was, a, there was some, some quality that I was very conscious of at the time. Uh, I still felt that I was trying to get the last gasp of something. You know, that, that sort of, so I would, uh, you know, spend a lot of time in, in some of you followed the debates about dialectic materialism and Hegel and all of this. I mean, a lot of those issues were rehearsed, you know, at the dinner table with David and Brooklyn. Yeah, Richard's afraid that we're going to generate our own homegrown George Novak. <laughs> it was the SWP uh, yeah, philosopher. Yeah, um, um, was just a Philistine. But anyway, okay, well, we won't get into that. Um, so, yeah, uh, so anyway, going back to the moment that we responded to, so the particular moment in which we intersected as far as was really the one world historical moment that they experienced. And so it was a curious moment, because the collapse of the Soviet Union was in the narrative of the Spartacist League itself, had to be the most important thing that had happened in world history in the entire time that the Spartacist League existed. And there's a way in which the significance of that event and the tendency to downplay the significance of that event. And, and we could have questions about how we and Platypus interpret the significance of that event. This is an event that I think has somewhat been pushed aside from the Platypus narrative. So the Platypus narrative is mostly about earlier history. It's about the 1970s. It's not really about the 1980s and 90s in the same way, and about the significance of that shift. So I remember this feeling of like, here is something of obviously world historical importance, and here is this group that seems to be the only people who seem to have a grasp on really how significant it is. I mean, because most of the people that we encounter seem to be downplaying its significance. Um, so there was this sense of, of history actually happening in some profound way. And of some, I mean, and I won't go into the details of like Trotskyism, but, but part of, I had been skeptical, maybe I still am skeptical, of certain aspects of Trotsky's analysis of Stalin. I found that the collapse of the Soviet Union, to me, intellectually, validated his analysis which is in a curious phenomenon, and, and something I've talked about with Chris, and something I also talked about with David. And you know, David, who had been part of this generation that had experienced with the Soviet Union as something heroic, said, well, that's very strange. Because for most people, 
the collapse of the Soviet Union was an experience that tended to invalidate previous thinking. It wasn't something that would validate a Marxist analysis. Um, and so the paradox for me personally, and, and Chris can speak for myself, because I think we were somewhat different places intellectually, although we often traveled in parallel, was that the collapse of the Soviet Union made my perspective on the world more Marxist, not less. And so, a negative confirmation. it was a negative confirmation of the truth of a Marxist, specifically, basically Trotskyism. And at that point, I basically kept the Trotskyism as the legacy of classical Marxism. So, my sense then of the 90s, and sort of my ideological sense, was that while, in a sense, that the experience was depoliticized, I was going into the 90s with. Um, a much more profoundly Marxist worldview than I had left it. Now, the obvious question that was raised, particularly after the immediate sort of shock of the disintegration of the Soviet Union, and wondering, okay, what's going to happen in the world now because this huge thing is happening. So by like the mid-90s, I don't know, it wasn't a specific year, but say certainly by 1994 when I met David, it was clear that the effects of the collapse of the Soviet Union were profoundly depoliticizing and right-wing in terms of global politics, and certainly on the left. But at the same time, my own intellectual perspective had moved to the left in a very clear way. So I found myself experiencing Marxism even more as a way of understanding the world rather than changing. And I think that that you know, part of the cliche of Marxism is that the point is to change the world, right? And so people constantly reiterate these cliches of sort of, uh, you know, moral indignation, changing the world, and getting out and being in concrete struggles. And there was, therefore, for me, like my own narrative of sort of understanding of Marxism, that Marxism was a theoretical project, like that there was an aspect of it that I could experience Marxism as the truth at a time when it seemed particularly irrelevant. And the irrelevance didn't make me feel that Marxism was untrue, it just made me feel that it was true, but that, that sort of the realm of its accessibility was problematic. And that experience, which is not per se a Platypus experience, and which in some ways, at the risk of being misunderstood, one would have to describe as a spiritual experience, in terms of it's a spiritual experience about the meaning of history and one's own place in history. Um, certainly made Platypus as an idea possible for me. Um, it's not exactly necessarily the experience of the death of the life, but it's some thought that it's very similar. It's some thought of how strange it is that this worldview that seems so true to me seems so irrelevant and powerful. So, um, you know, it's sort of the Cassandra-like quality. Um, so, 
And then there was again the experience with David and with a whole generation of sort of older leftists and the sense of gathering into myself some type of generational historical experience. Now, of course, that generation is gone. Uh, and we're now trying to do that with the 60s generation, whatever. But, but there was that sense of, okay, my experience of the left is, is that what I'm doing is not immediately about changing the world, it's about understanding what it meant for people to believe that they could change the world. And taking some of that and sort of internalizing that experience into myself. Because I felt that like some experience was being lost that needed to be passed on. So then, fast forward a bit, um, and I'll try to shorten it. So, at some point, Chris and I ended up in Chicago. Chris ended up in Chicago. And I don't remember exactly. I found out Chris was living in Chicago. And I started meeting with Chris and talking to him. And you know, we had both kind of withdrawn from any kind of active politics. All, for us, politics was something quite theoretical. I mean, later, after the Second Intifada broke out, I kind of got involved Solidarity stuff, which was not like profoundly radical. I would say mostly kind of rad lib. It's part of a group called Not in My Name and stuff like that, and other groups that were even further to the right, more liberal, more rational, actually. But, you know, um, and so, you know, I talked to Chris about these things, and uh, again, like one of the images that comes to mind is that I, I went, I don't know the exact year, but, but I remember one conversation that I had with Chris, and I remember where it was, it was the Indiana Dunes, and I went with Chris and some French <laughs> friends of mine, and we went to the Indiana Dunes. And I was talking to Chris, and I thought, like, like, I had this sudden rush of unreality in this thought, and I was thinking about it, because a lot of this to me often feels like an unreal phenomenon. Last night, how can this exist? You know, I mean, to you, it, maybe it's more natural. To me, it's something profoundly unnatural. I still have the, the it's a hoax of the British taxi. Freedom is unnatural. Yeah, it is unnatural. I agree. Um, so, so, and I'm talking to Chris, and you know, it's the Indiana Dunes, and, and um, it's a sort of conversation. I never remember the exact context of the conversation, but I remember having this feeling of, like, who is this person, Chris Cutrone? <laughs> talking to him about this stuff, and are we insane? You know, because like when you know you're in a room full of like 50, 100 people, there's this sense of well, you belong to some kind of community. When it's like two people, you know, you think like maybe I'm just not. I just I'm hanging out with him. what? What is the French term for the share? Yeah, right. You know, it's like, it's it's like is this like some really bizarre thinking. <clears throat> and so Chris can fill out the narrative, but, but the other, for me, psychological turning point in Platypus was not so much the meeting with Spencer and other people from sort of the old guard and talking about a journal project, but the real turning point was actually meeting with Chris's students people who represent kind of the second generation, like people like, well, three people who are, th 
three quarters of the next slate. So Pam, Dan, and Lori, all the first generation versus students, right? And when I had a sense that these ideas, in some sense, were starting to make sense, like, like there's a historical evolution, and I'm foreshortening a lot of things here, started to make sense for um, younger people, and that there was sort of a growing market for a set of ideas or a way of thinking about the left or sensibility, um, there was a great feeling of relief, a feeling that um, one could have some slim possibility of hope and not just a kind of ever-increasing melancholy. So there was, from its inception, a melancholic aspect to Platypus that I think haunts it. But it's a bit different from the melancholia of me in the mid-90s, like talking to octogenarian and nonagenarian leftists and thinking, well, in a few years they'll all be dead. And it will just be in my memory. Um, and I guess one other thing, the point that has to do with the beginning of sort of the part of the experience of the original Platypus reading group uh, came about also sort of by accident. I was at Myopic Books and I came across a copy of the New Left Reader, which many of you will know from its canonical status. And I told Chris, you know, this book would really be a good thing to read through because, like, there are lots of texts in it, including Russian Polakovsky and all these other things. That, that it kind of symbolizes a moment, and it's the moment of the new left. And part of the experience about thinking about this has to do with the way the memory of the 60s has been transmuted over time. So I think that, that there are two aspects to the shift toward Platypus. One is, you know, in 1988, like, Okay, so 1968 was still 20 years behind. There was still a sense of, you know, the 60s could return, right? Mm -hmm. And there's still a nostalgia for that. I mean, growing up in, you know, kind of boring, upper middle class, upper class, white suburbia, I certainly had a desire for that. I certainly had a, and as time has passed, the 60s and the memory of the 60s seem less and less liberatory and more and more purely oppressive and something that one doesn't really identify with as any kind of liberation. And that's sort of been a growing cultural process. And the other was the significance, I would say, of 1989 as a turning point. The third turning point, of course, has to do with the beginning, like around the turn of the millennium, and sort of the 9-11, the war on terror, which, which shifted, I think, the moment of the 90s. I mean, in retrospect for me, the 90s were a period where one could be quiescent. I mean, one could be both radical and quiescent. I think that the period after 2001 brought to the question more whether the left had, what it meant to be on the left at all. Like I think that there was a sense of disintegration about the basic concepts of the left that started to show more and more. And 
the kind of passive acquiescence in a kind of Spartacist worldview, sort of going on automatically, became harder for me to sustain. So, so in up through the 90s, I was still able to think, okay, you know, the Sparts are basically right about history, and maybe they can't change it, but there's still something heroic in this perspective. And there's a way in which I still think basic aspects of that worldview are just fundamentally true. But there's also, it's become clearer and clearer to me that that represents something radical. Maybe you want to go over Spencer. Yep. I didn't prepare anything, and you really uh, in a lot of ways react to, to Richard's uh, presentation. Um, I'm the odd man out. You're the essential third. Yeah, I was. I, I didn't grow up in New York. There's no politics anywhere. Um, when I was young, but what I I think I always brought was um, a sense of history happening that I only really came to reflect upon as an adult. Uh, but you know, I, in the, in some ways, one's memories are. Are, are really formed by later experience, but when I think back about the things that informed my sense of history, in this sense that in the 80s we were in the shadow of the 60s in a way that ceased to be the case, um, was the two events that I remember on the news were the coal miner strike in Southern Virginia, which was the local news which went on forever. And my father was building a coal gasification plant. He was uh, the lead researcher on that. And he was explaining to me how they were going to be rationalizing coal supply. And now they, that industry employs about a tenth of what it used to, and that union was gone. And the Iranian Revolution, uh, which certainly the first image of the television that I remember clearly. Um, and through the 80s, you know, I, the, the 60s were just sort of echoing. Uh, I think it, it, it became particularly clear in the Jesse Jackson uh, presidential campaign in, in 84. And when I landed up in College in that game, and I would, you know, and I would say that you know, also I really grew up in the kind of shadow of Fordism. I mean, when I when I lived in, in England as a young child, and I split my head fighting with my brother, my mother had to walk us a mile to the doctor because everyone rode bicycles, which was the, the form that, that Fordism was taking. <laughs> in this, in this, this little town of, of great Missington in England, and then um, my hometown was a company town. Uh, it was an industrial city of, of chemical production, 
and the loyalty of the workers to management was astounding. And it was a whole social life. Uh, we used to watch uh, cartoons on film in the Cartoon Film Society sponsored by the company, which also gives Christmas presents every year. Then um, if you complained about the stench uh, of the pollution from this chemical factory that employed 20,000 workers on Christmas Eve night, people would say to you, that's the smell of money. That was the working class's opinion. That was their loyalty. To that company. What I really differ from these guys from in the sense is that I had absolutely no political background, um, but rather in a, in a whole series of ways uh, experienced the change of not just, I didn't experience it so much as the collapse of the Soviet Union, as the 60s becoming a repetition compulsion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that in the 80s it felt like you might still be in history. I think that that's in a lot of ways the way that, mm -hmm. that the Soviet Union's collapse felt, was that it was in some ways the realization. I wouldn't have understood that then, but it maybe Czechoslovakia in 68, certainly that, mm -hmm. that was the way that the Cliffites would, would interpret it. Mm -hmm. um, in the 90s, when I came to reflect on this. There was a slogan, 89 to 68 turned upside down. And or right side out. <laughs> you know, but when I when I also I later lived in, in Palestine and you know, I in a sense lived in one state uh, before the Intifada when I went to high school. And the pathologies of that question and the way in which the direction that Palestinian nationalism took uh, after I, I came back to the States and completed uh, the time I spent in school in Ramallah also haunted me. And particularly uh, the last experiences of, the, of kind of the mid-century for me were the last gap of Nehruvian socialism when I went to India in 1991 and was able to pay for the exit taxes by selling my jeans on the streets of Bombay because you couldn't get jeans or cigarette lighters uh, in the old uh, development, developmental state. And in my experience of the fall of the Soviet Union, which was to travel to Uzbekistan in 1993, and to see this city that had been built in the height of the Soviet Union, which had been crushed by an earthquake uh, in, I believe, the early 60s, and been built into this model Soviet city, beautiful tree-lined avenues, and marble uh, from floor to ceiling in the subway system. And to see the, the, the Saudi and the Yemeni missionaries coming in and teaching people how to pray and teaching old men who didn't know how to be Muslim 
um, as the markets closed and you couldn't buy anything but food when when I was there, the annual inflation rate was over a thousand percent as people's pensions were wiped out and just the old world of the Soviet Union was just sort of vanishing in front of your eyes. And the prices doubled twice while I was there. Taxis and hotels, uh, would, they would just announce on the radio, taxis and hotels are going to be twice as expensive tomorrow. And you couldn't buy durable goods. Um, shops just couldn't sell anything. Um, and so I had these sorts, this sort of undigested uh, history uh, rattling around, which, as a, which I, in a sense, tried to process with with a series of professors who were all of the '60s and '70s generation. Uh, the first was Richard Brody, who was my great undergraduate uh, mentor, uh, who tried to turn me into a kind of old-style social democrat. Um, it was a, a new dealer. Um, and that became extremely implausible over the course of the Clinton administration. And the others were in graduate school. Uh, it was first Habermas at Northwestern, and who I read with Lori. And then, uh, who in a sense was what Rorty told me he was, and or, or to the extent that he wasn't, it didn't make a difference anymore. Um, and the other, the others were, you know, the sort of degeneracy of, uh, of, of the old, uh, new left generation, the younger one, uh, the Pei who was really represented. Full-scale collapse of intellectualism and a kind of a retread of, of third worldism as as post-colonial theory, and, and, and then of course Moshe Stone, who was very formative for me. Um, but I remember early on realizing, and I don't, you know, I'll never know if it was a figment of my imagination or if Chris was actually there, but in my mind in 1999. Uh, when when Moish told the room that he was so glad that our generation had finally done something in Seattle. <laughs> I don't know if this was there or not. But to, to me, we were looking across the room at each other like, what the fuck? Uh, because that was clearly the moment um, to me that, that, that the 60s would never end. Uh, that it wasn't that a historical epoch had passed when we'd entered into a new one, but rather that, that history had manifestly uh, ceased to be anything more than a kind of repetition of one damn thing after another that always seemed uh, the same. And so, you know, it was, it was then that I, you know, I, I also was, you know, friends with all of the Stone students. Everyone took him seriously, and 
realized quickly that they were just not even political people. Uh, that to me, these ideas were beginning to make a, a, a different kind of call to her. I remember being, opening myself to being recruited by the ISO for about a week um, and realizing that that was, they, they, they sold their newspaper in Hyde Park. And, they would dangle the, the prettiest female members in front of you and, and, and call you up vaguely. It wasn't clear why they were calling. And when you finally hung out with them, it was it was just sort of bong hits and. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and silk screen and T-shirts, and I was like. Well, they would play these old Soviet songs. <laughs> Ironically enough, in, 19, in the 1990s. So I, you know, I, I really, you know, the, the, the experience that I think I first really became, I mean, Chris and I talked a lot, I actually became friends, but I think the level at which we bonded uh, was teaching students. Uh, and it was the recognition that we didn't have to do what Moish was doing. We didn't have to do what the other generation was doing, which was refusing to teach. That there was a sense in which we were dealing with a kind of shipwreck generation uh, that had that was historically extremely disoriented, and that that presented opportunities. Um, and I remember, you know, a, a lot of, of, of formative, I think, really sort of pre-platypus thinking on my part really came out of my recognition. A, that I couldn't discuss pedagogy with any colleague other than Chris. Um, and especially not in the faculty meetings led by Moish. And, and that class was, you know, that, that teaching marks to young people was a, you know, as we would, you know, as we would put it, a no bets, you know, all bets are off proposition. Um, but I understood also that there were limitations to being a professor and to teaching in that environment. But it did open up the question to me as to you know, how the kind of, my sense of sort of extreme intellectual dissatisfaction with every living attempt to interpret the experience of the 60s to the 90s in my own experience by the older generation was something that I was going to have to work out with the new generation. Um, and, and I think that that is really the point when, you know, with this, as we all felt it, the anarchism of the 1999, I knew was the new left. But everyone knew it with the anti-war movement. Um, it was the anti-Vietnam War protest all over again. 
And I think that that's when the conversations uh, became much more rich. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I know that, that uh, Richard went over time a little bit, so I'll be interested in that. So what I want to say, I want to make some mention about um, you know, our motto or slogan. Uh, I'm not going to get into our um, prehistory, the sort of pre-organizational history of Platypus, where we considered <coughs> starting a journal project with some other people who are in the room here today, uh, Stephanie, um, Akia, Sumit. Um, in 2004, in the aftermath of Kerry not being elected and Bush being re-elected, um, and the manifest failure of the anti-war movement that that represented, um, you know, leaving that aside a little bit, uh, in other words, the, the sort of initial concept of platypus um, that underwent a change in a couple of years. Um, but the only reason I mention it is that when we had our meeting with the prospective editorial board, um, you know, it was really a meeting of peers, and yet I was uh, commissioned to write our editorial statement of purpose, which then I shelved as a project until 2006, when uh, Spencer and Simi uh, were attending the SWP UK's uh, annual Marxism conference, um, and were uh, furiously contacting me, where's that, or where's that editorial statement of purpose that you promised? We really need to distribute that here um, because this is unbearable. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I, I dutifully um, wrote it up and circulated it to Richard and sent it off to them for feedback. Um, and that is the What is a Platypus on Surviving the Extinction of the Left? Um, and then uh, Richard said, well, you know, in fact, you mentioned some names and dates there that need some explanation. And so I went back to the drawing board and came up with the short history of the left um, uh, that uh, served as our kind of initial statements. Um, but it was in that context that we came up with, or I came up with, the slogan, the left is dead. Right, that motto, the left is dead. And so what I want to organize my comments around is what that meant personally for me, um, because it meant something very specific. Um, it meant that, uh, and this was not something that merely dawned on me in 2006, but became clarified in 2006, um, but rather was a consciousness that I had for a long time prior to that. Um, my three mentors on the left uh, are the Spartacus League, Adolf Reed and Moshe Stone. And when I wrote, when I typed the words, the left is dead, for me that meant them. It meant these people who I had a great deal of respect for, not only intellectually but politically, in terms of their political judgment, were never going to contribute to the emancipation of the world other than by being declared dead and me doing something entirely different with the mentorship I had received from them. In other words, that I needed to affect a break. Say, I'm grateful to the Spartacist League, I'm grateful to Adolf Reed, I'm grateful to Moish Postone for what they've taught me, but it's out of their hands or there's no hope, right? Um, 
and it's in my hands now, or it's in our hands now. Um, and that's what that slogan, that's what that motto means, the left is dead, long live the left, right? It's the sort of ancient call when the king is dead, right? the king is dead, long live the king. Um, meaning it's the break that has to be acknowledged in order for continuity to take place. Um, and so the, the issue of us, uh, you know, why we are the overlapping members of the two slates of the ORCOM that will be up for election in coming weeks, um, one way of putting it is generational experience. I think that Richard and Spencer both did a very fine job of articulating that, so I'm not going to articulate my own generational experience so much as I'm going to uh, reflect upon um, the significance of that generational experience and why, um, why we are, in a sense, special members of Platypus, meaning we are the members of Platypus who are, on the one hand, the most essential, and on the other hand, the most inessential. Um, I was talking to Richard about this a few weeks ago, uh, thinking ahead to the convention, um, and certainly it's something that Spencer and I have talked about a great deal. It's something that Spencer just mentioned in his remarks, which is that um, Platypus is what it is, stands or falls on what it is for people significantly younger than us. In other words, it's, Platypus is not essentially what it is for us, um, because in a sense, we come too late for platypus. Um, and so that gives our role, our generational role, um, a, a, a peculiar character and a specificity that I want to um, uh, talk about. Um, and it came home for us in terms of our recent organizational experience with issue 54 of the platypus review. Issue 54 of the Platypus Review, a series of interviews conducted by, um, largely by Ross Wolf, our member, and also with the help of others. Um, and two of the three interviews stand out, especially in this respect, Bruno Bastilles and Jody Dean, um, who are roughly our generational cohort, our generational cohort. And, you know, very simply put, if the future of the left is, you know, is in the hands of the people of our generation, then the left really is dead in, its, in a completely other way. Meaning, not the left is dead, long live the left, but the left is dead, period. It's over. Yeah, it's just over. Um, and what that means is that, you know, our role in Platypus is, you know, seminal, but also inoculatory. Um, Meaning, you know, we're the essential sort of germplasm, you know, dissemination. Um, we're the probes that move into outer space. On the one hand, but on the other hand, we're also the, you know, essential. You need to, you need to get the antibodies from us, right? So, <laughs> so I guess the, uh, the metaphor is really procreational in terms of uh, the, the male and the female role, right? Um, we need to transmit both the germplasm, but also the antibodies. Um, and uh, in other words, you know, we have our allergies to the left that you guys need to pay close attention to <laughs> uh, because it's important. Um, now, you know, sad to say, 
Um, those antibodies can't be generated anew, but can only be transmitted. Um, meaning, and this is something that I'll talk about later uh, in my president's report for this year, uh, it's on the legacy of the 1980s left. Um, but roughly speaking, what we represent is the 80s generation. We're not the 90s generation, we're the 80s generation. Um, and uh, ironically enough, um, largely because um, Richard and I were, well Richard's a bit older than me, but Richard and I were uh, kind of active and aware of the left young, at a young age, like when I was in high school. Um, yeah, there's yeah. something that both of us brought up in terms of the trajectory. I mean, you mentioned the trinity of Adolf Reed, uh, and I, I know that Reed is a popular number right now, but I, I think that, that Mike Pistone played a different role than Adolf Reed, a much more complicated role. Uh -huh. And so, and both you and Spencer were obviously deeply influenced by Mike Pistone. Obviously, another huge influence is Adorno. Which was actually, as I understand it, basically a post-Hampshire. Interest of mine, yeah. Post-Hampshire was not. So, I, and certainly that's something that I actually did not experience. I mean, I, I sort of through products have become aware. I was sort of aware of it before for personal reasons, but, but I've become aware of Moish Postone. But I think that sort of the question of Moish Postone's role in Platypus is actually quite significant, though not for me personally. And I think that that's something that needs to be brought out of it because all of the older generational cohorts, except for me, went through the Moish Postone school. So I, I so think- So that would be, at the end, it would be James Vaughan, right, um, Stephanie, um, you know, so let me say something about this, and I'll say something, before I get to the question of Pistone, I'll say something about Adolf. Um, because Adolf is a really key character for us. Um, uh, I think uh, in ways that maybe, when Richard and I reconnected in Chicago, um, after graduating from Hampshire, um, Adolf Reed also relocated to Chicago around that time. Um, he had been at Yale. Um, when we were in Hampshire, and he was close friends with a number of leftist faculty in the five college area. And he was not a direct professor of mine. Uh, he wrote a, a column for New York Newsday magazine, I mean, newspaper, but I think it was the weekend edition. And I had, had written him a letter in response to his op-ed column, and we had struck up a, uh, a correspondence, and, and then we had met because I was, as it turned out, I went to school with his son uh, at Hampshire. And so he used to routinely visit Hampshire. Um, and so we got to know each other that way, sort of an extracurricular way. But when he relocated, when Adolf relocated, and just for those of you who don't know who Adolf is, he's a 60s generation uh, black political scientist, activist, who was briefly a Trotskyist in the late 60s in the SWP in the United States. Um, and then uh, had the experience of uh, labor activism as well as um, uh, becoming an academic in the 70s and in the 80s. Um, and uh, he wrote probably most famously on what he called the Jesse Jackson phenomenon, on the uh, translation of the civil rights movement into Democratic Party machine politics in the 70s and 80s. 
um, and that was about the 84 election that, that uh, Spencer mentioned. Um, and he was involved in the 90s, Adolf, with a, the Labor Party USA project, um, which he tried to get me involved in, um, and which to the great strain. Well, to the great strain of my uh, friendship with Adolf, I, I refused to participate in. Um, but Stephanie participated. Yeah. Um, and Stephanie and I were personal friends around this time. We weren't comrades around that milieu. We just became personal friends, but this is a kind of shared experience of, of ours. Adolf and introduced them. Adolf introduced Stephanie and, and, uh, personally. But uh, what the Labor Party was, I mean, when Richard says it was a gimmick, a little bit uncharitable. It's a symptomatic phenomenon um, of the 1990s. Um, namely, it was a phenomenon of uh, labor dissidents from the Democratic Party turn uh, with Clinton. It was, a, it was a Clinton era attempt to put pressure on the Democratic Party from outside by labor left activists. But, but the labor bureaucracy didn't really, even the left labor bureaucracy, didn't they really played with it. it, didn't really support it, they didn't really want to push it to a break. In other words, so they played with the Labor Party idea, but they weren't going to actually try to build a real Labor Party because that would mean running against the Democrats. So it was a kind of fraud. But then it attracted all of these sectarians. So you have these meetings with like all these sectarians who would be denouncing like other people as sectarians. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it had a, a rather farcical quality. The Labor Party is not really um, what I want to mention about Adolf. <coughs> what I want to mention about Adolf is that like Moish, and I will really get into the discussion of Moish uh, you know, forthwith, um, he is two things at once. And the Spartacists are also this, but in a rather obscure way that I don't want to get into because it's a little bit too complicated. Um, they are dissidents from the New Left, critics of the New Left, um, who nonetheless, in a sense, exemplify the New Left. In other words, as critical New Leftists, they are, in a sense, not only what's best about the New Left, but they're also kind of pure New Leftists. Um, and that's true in very different ways with the Spartacists, with Adolf, and with Moish. Nonetheless, that's something that they have in common. And so what, um, what, what Richard and Spencer have mentioned um, I want to sort of put more precision on, namely that we experience the pedagogy of the new left generation. And uh, in a sense, a couple of crises of that new left generation, um, namely the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, that, that, that they got what they wanted, but then weren't sure that they had gotten what they wanted. Um, and then uh, the reanimation of their generational sensibility by our generation and people a little bit younger with Seattle 1999 and with the anti-war movement and the zeros in the, in the first decade of the 21st century. Um, and what Spencer mentioned, when was the, when were the Seattle protests? Yeah, but what, what month? October. Oh, all right. Well, then it definitely was the case, and I was definitely in the room, and we definitely looked at each other across the room. That definitely happened. <laughs> and it definitely did happen. We were taking a, a Moish's class, the first class that I took with Moish, um, on Capital Volume 1, Moish's Capital Volume 1. And yes, and he was enthusiastic about the Seattle protests in a way that Spencer and I and Richard also Richard, who attended that class a few sessions, he did come to the class because I remember Moish asking me, who is that guy? And I was like, oh, that's my good friend Richard. That our experience of Seattle 1999 was, if this is the left, we're not part of it. 
right? Um, and interestingly enough, Spencer mentioned the ISO. The ISO got kicked out of the international socialist tendency, the, the global international socialist tendency, for abstaining from the Seattle protests. And then subsequently they've self-corrected and self-criticized themselves for abstaining from the Seattle protests, but they were well, kicked out for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, exactly, it was, it was a good call on their part. Um, and, uh, and the Spartacists also were quite critical of the Seattle protests, but then they also self-corrected. They also withdrew their criticism of the Seattle protests. But anyway, our experience of it was, if this is the left, we're not part of it. Um, and uh, so it was kind of a line in the sand, if you will, for our generational experience um, coming out of the 90s. Um, and, uh, and then the anti-war movement just compounded that, because the anti-war movement brought in other aspects of the new left. Um, uh, meaning, you know, if, if this is the left, then it's really dead. And um, can I actually comment? I mean, I, I think I actually have somewhat slightly different emotional experience. I mean, not that intellectual evaluation, but a different emotional response to Seattle protest. I mean, I remember the enthusiasm around the Seattle protest in the sense of like, oh, now something is springing to life. And I think that that was what I reacted against. Like, I had a feeling, well, no, something isn't springing to life. But this is like, like there was a way in Put which the nail in the coffin. There's a there's a way in which right. So that my that what I remember being struck by was that my emotional experience, not, not the intellectual political evaluation. And I want to emphasize the difference. That my emotional experience was different intuitively from most of the people around me who are like, oh, it's good, finally people are protesting. And I remember like experiencing the political lassitude of the sort of mid-90s period as a relief. And I thought like, okay, now there's going to be lots of activism and I'm not really going to be able to identify with this activism. And that will make me feel alienated from the left. So, so it was this moment of sort of self-realization that I didn't really want there to be lots of activism. And like I hadn't really thought about that because I sort of always had this sort of self-image of like, well, of course I would want the left to reply. Um, but just not that way. But no, just I, I, I would just say that you know, in terms of what Richard was saying before, in terms of the moment when you felt the legacy of the 60s as this oppressive weight mm -hmm. and that it was never going to stop, that to me was the late 90s. Yeah. That's yeah. when I just, I had a, a kind of historical sensibilities crystallized. Yeah, because uh, 99 was 68, but without the creativity. In other words, they weren't running a pick for president or trying to levitate the Pentagon. And In other words, it was, it was the 60s humorless. It was like a humorless 60s. And and I just, just as one footnote to that, paradoxically, and I, I don't know why it is, but I was in downtown Manhattan like during Occupy, and there was like one of those big protests, people marching down the street. And I mean, I was from the beginning, I mean, you know, I occupied, it's just this sort of ridiculous bubble. But the strange thing was, and I have, and, and this is a peculiar, peculiar thing, and I have to think about why the emotional reaction. That there was actually something about this feeling of this protest and the scene that I found myself sort of cruising on. And I thought to myself, like, okay, like that seems like the inverse of the 99 reaction. 
And really, I think that what I was reacting to was actually the fact that already, like by 2011, something was clearly dead. And like it was okay, it was like the, the bacilli that, or the, that had been killed, so you could like, take them as an inoculation. And so, like what I saw in 2011, because platypus existed, but what I saw in 2011 was this sense of there's something sort of there's something kind of viscerally fascinating and powerful about this, but it's also people putting on a show. It's also something that has already become transparently unreal, and if people don't experience it as unreal, it's because people are refusing to see it. There's a way in which in 99 still had this intermediate character of you could sort of still... It was an artist. You could, yeah. yeah, you could still take it seriously as something coming back. So it's like, like the first time is tragedy, the second time is farce, and the, the third, third time, time as simulacrum, exactly. And there's a way that the experience of the simulacrum could be subjectively experienced in a different way from the experience of the fart. And what I often worry about with platypus, and this is something I've talked about with Chris, is that a lot of platypus is experiencing the left, like what we experience here. We're experiencing a simulacrum. When you meet like the PSL, RCP, you're experiencing the simulacrum of, of sectarian radicalism. You're not even experiencing the tragic or even the farcical quality anymore, you know? Um, and that's something that maybe you guys take for granted, but that is at some level a conceptual problem. Because you already accept accept something that we had to go through a process of getting to. Alright, so let me just briefly, because we should um, we should move it along, uh, I'll just uh, respond to what um, Richard was asking of me, namely characterize the stone. Um, because in this respect, we know why it's a tricycle, right? Um, why Richard said it's a tricycle. Because then it falls to me to sort of synthesize these two things. Um, namely the Spartacist background and the Pistone background. And the reason I brought up Adolf Reed is that Adolf Reed is uh, more politically serious than Marsh. Um, and, uh, and he's a political scientist, he takes politics more seriously. And I, you know, learned to think about politics critically, uh, you know, to, to philosophize, it, if you will, about politics from Adolf, not from Moish. And uh, so it's a different kind of uh, constellation there with Adolf and the Spartacists. Who don't, Adolf hates the Spartacists, but the Spartacists actually admire Adolf, um, which is different. Uh, whereas the Spartacists and Pistone, there's just mutual non-recognition, antipathy, whatever. Um, nonsense between the two. Um, it's not the same with Adolf, that's why I situate him in the mix. So, Pistone. Um, okay. And also Richard did mention Adorno. Um, and uh, I gave some characterization of Adorno in the internal report that I wrote as lead pedagogue about you know why the syllabus is as it is, why Adorno is the uh, kind of resolution figure of, of the cast of characters in our readings. Um, you know, it doesn't come from personal interest uh, in the sense that I'm interested in Adorno and therefore Adorno is important for Platypus. 
Um, but rather that my interest in Adorno comes from my background in Marxism. Um, and, uh, you know, some of you know, a source of bitter contention between me and Moish is over the interpretation of Adorno. Um, and so it's, it's a real kind of uh, existential kind of flashpoint uh, for me. Through your plan for a career. Yeah, maybe more or less. I mean, thankfully I'm, I'm done, but, you know, uh, at, at one level. But um, what Postone represented uh, for me in my late encounter with Postone, um, I'd have to characterize um, why Moish's work made sense to me given my incongruous background. Um, namely, why my education as a Spartacist would prepare me for Moish. Right? Um, because it wasn't that, oh, this is what Moish is critiquing, and so I know what he's critiquing, and therefore I understand Moish's work. That's a large portion of it. Um, when Spencer said, look, most of Moish's other students were just not political people, meaning they don't understand what Moish is criticizing when Moish criticizes traditional Marxism. They have, it's an objectless critique. It means nothing. Um, it's just a sort of a dummy that they can attack. Um, and whereas for me, presumably, yeah, I kind of knew what it was. And yet I knew that the Spartacists were not what Moish said traditional Marxism was. And I think James Wan has an experience of this um, because he uh, was in the ISO for a while. He was in the ISO for a while, but also he knows um, Brenner mm -hmm. personally, um, you know, the famous Brenner debates. And they had a conversation with Brenner about um, Moish. And Brenner said, and Brenner's a Trotskyist. Um, I don't know if he's a Mandelite Trotskyist. What is his background? He's actually in solidarity. He's in solidarity, but what's his deep background? I think it's Mandelite Trotskyism. Um, and what he said was, you know, Moish goes on and on and on about, you know, traditional Marxism. And he says, you know, people don't understand that the point is to abolish labor. He's like, we've known this all along, right? In other words, Brenner was like, look, you know, it's in the tradition. Like, you know, Trotsky has always knew that the point was to abolish labor, not to ontologize it. And so Moish is railing against, you know, something that just doesn't exist, um, or he's pushing on an open door there, right? And in which case, you know, well, then who is Moish speaking to? Well, he's speaking to people who don't know anything about Marxism, right? Those were his students. Um, and so, in this respect, right, I didn't experience Moish the way Moish wanted me to experience his work, which is as a revelation, like as a conversion. Oh, you're a traditional Marxist, and now you see the light, and you know, right? But rather that Moish added to um, the historical self-consciousness that I had already received from traditional Marxism. Um, and I had gotten that from two places before uh, encountering Moish's work, and Richard's right to point it out. Um, the Spartacist League, Trotskyism, um, a kind of orthodox Trotskyism, a very self-consciously kind of narrowed kind of orthodoxy on that part. Um, you know, kind of formaldehyde-preserved Trotskyism that's very intentional on that part. With elements of crypto-heterodox. Sure. And Adorno. Right, because I, in fact, had been, I had encountered Adorno, uh, you know, a good number of years, uh, five or six years before encountering Moishe's work. Um, and I had encountered Adorno as compatible with the Spartacist League, and I had encountered Postone's work as compatible with both the Spartacist League and Adorno. Right, so I... Can, I just want to make one other comment about the 
if when you, you mentioned much the Adolf and sparsity, and if you were to line these people sort of conventionally on the right scale, mm -hmm. you would say, oh, the sparse league is on the left, Moish mm -hmm. Bustan is the right, and Adolf Reed is to the left of Moish to the right. And you could do that, and that would make a certain amount of sense, but the interesting thing is in a way that categorization is also irrelevant right. in terms of how one processes them. In other words, it's not that the sparse league is better because they are to the left, although in some sense they are, or vice versa. And um, I guess the other thing that should be said, I mean, James is not here, but James is to some extent, I am the least Postelian form member of sort of being older. But James's position, I think, vis-a-vis -vis Postone is a little bit intermediate between, say, Chris and Spencer and Mott. He was a student, but I think he was more resistant to Postone. And I think part of that was his sort of relationship to people like Brenner and the ISO and the sort of different temperament or whatever. Right. So let me just wrap up then by saying um, with respect to uh, the characterization of the stone, um, that, and this will summarize some things, that what the Spartacists offered, Richard and, and me, uh, that I mentioned this last year at the convention last year, was a consciousness of history. And what we took away from them was the, in a sense, the divergence between the consciousness of history and the practical politics. For them, they're inextricably tied, meaning you only have this consciousness of history so insofar as you're trying to build the international vanguard party of proletarian socialism. And if you don't, then the, you don't have that consciousness of history. We experience these as separable. In other words, the way that I put it last year that I'll reiterate now is that we got the consciousness of history without the attendant pre uh, pretense to uh, building a vanguard party. Because of course, the Spartans are not building any vanguard party. That's just not happening. Uh, no one is doing that. Um, and so, uh, you know, again, um, that consciousness of history. Now, that consciousness of history also comes, however, uh, via Postone, and it's a different consciousness of history. It's a consciousness of history that's not fixated on what 1917 means, but rather on what 1968 means. And this is what brings us around to the question of the critical new left being the essential new left. Um, meaning, for, for Moish Postone, for Adolf Reed, um, the late 60s moment is uh, the lodestar of their consciousness. And Whereas the Spartacists believe that, and like Adorno, believe that history has regressed since 1917, 1919, Adolf and Moish don't agree with that. They think there was progress between 1917 and 1968, but they do think that there's been regression since 1968. And that's important. That's important. In other words, where we might differ with them on 1968 as a high point, they at least acknowledge that our lifetimes have been one of regression, right? Have been a historical period of regression. And uh, of course, then this raises a whole other question, which is the fact that Potipus is not largely, but maybe will increasingly be people born after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So um, 1989, and in fact, will be soon enough post-1999. Um, and so 
that raises again the generational transmission issue that um, that I that I wanted to get across uh, via the three of us, um, namely. Platypus might be dependent upon taking the dying confessions of the 60s generation. It may not be able to do what we need to do in our, this, this project may not be viable once that generation disappears, and we're talking rather to our generation, right? Because our generation is nowhere near ready to give a dying confession. They've got a lot of fight in them left. And, and they never lived in any case. Yeah, and they never lived in any case. Um, and so, <laughs> really. Um, and so, in, in this respect, Platypus is going to be in the coming years, in the next few years, facing real challenges um, with respect to uh, no longer our generation being a pivot between the 60s and uh, the later generation, um, but rather where our generation will simply be the older generation. And that is a nightmarish prospect, truly, um, that you should get a glimpse into. Um, you get the you know, rated PG-13 version of that in the Jimmy Dean and Bruno Bastille's interviews that we published two months ago. All right, so just briefly, because I know that we've started an hour late, and we're now facing our, our lunch break to a certain degree. Um, questions? Maybe we could do this for 10 minutes. Um, points of clarification on any obscure things that we might have said in this presentation. Were there any non obscure things? <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I have two questions. Um, one, one is just, uh, when you do that, when you make a spectrum, right, and you say, like, Moish Postone is on the right, I don't remember who's the left. Spartacus. Spartacus is to the left. Um, what is the, what is, when you, when you do that kind of move, you know, what is the left there? Like, what is that pole? The people who believe in revolution now. I was speaking right in, now. I was speaking like, right now. That it no. could happen right now. It I, I, should happen right I was now. speaking right in like the conventional social terms, the way they was, so like the Sparks are self-conscious revolutionary Marxist, like stripped of the pretension. I mean, Mosh Bastone is really a social democrat, not even a left one. Well, what about Adolf Reed right? is a left social democrat, and, and I'm speaking about the question, like actually my point is kind of the opposite, because I'm saying really the political spectrum doesn't matter. Because right. the point is right. not right. that one is to the left of the other, or one is more revolutionary. I mean, Platypus is not trying to be more the most revolutionary. Yeah. I mean, in many respects, I mean, I have often, even much more than Chris, I'm willing to admit that that Platypus in some respects represents, there's a right, there can be a right-wing character to Platypus. And that character is not a kind of self-conscious betrayal of a revolutionary tradition has to do with a recognition of the reality of history. There's a way in which like constantly posing oneself as a revolutionary just involves an element of self-delusion. But I'm saying that if you take a conventional political spectrum, well, okay, the Sparser 
revolutionary Marxist Trotskyist? I mean, what does that mean in the context? That's of very simple. If there was right, if there was a you know so-called proletarian socialist revolution uh, that was led by the hardcore left of today, well, there are all sorts of things that one would have to qualify this with. But if you know there was a major crisis of the state um, and a delegitimation of the government and some kind of you know popular democratic uprising. Um, and it happened to be led by the far left of today. You know, Adolf Fried and Moshe Bastogne would be in the counter-revolution. They would be in the counter-revolution. <laughs> okay, no, it's, it's very simple. I just want to answer. Um, what about, like, I mean, are insurrectionary anarchists Well, they think of themselves as the left, but then you get into the question of ultra-leftism, you know, and, you know, which is a valid category, of it, meaning that they are the ones, yeah, sure, of course, absolutely, they are the left. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, and I just want to add yeah, that you know, the, the thing that that confuses it for me about Bastogne is that on the one hand Bastogne is holding on to 68 and on the other hand Bastogne uh, for me really allowed for a, a, a consciousness of the philosophy of history that underlies the sparse sleep in a way that can see 1917 in the light of 1848. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's that question of, 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 of recognition that you, you live in capital and you don't, that really is at the heart of Marxist politics. I mean, you know, at, the, at the workshop on Thursday when Moish was faced with Milchman and this sort of uh, council communism. It's kind of council communist perspective. It was just a point at which you know you, he just was reduced to kind of raving, like, look, every single political movement only makes the world worse. And that when you understand that that is behind his social democracy, it changes its character. Yeah. And that, that he's that that, that that this is the critic of the sixties speaking. That every that, that my generation is in some fundamental way brought this about, it leaves him uh, kind of speechless and politically uh, ham-fisted. Uh, Unlike last year, we had um, good anarchist representation at our convention last year, um, and this year we didn't. Um, and I'm not sure what the choices were with respect to that. Um, but I think, you know, James Turley said something very accurate uh, in the uh, Vert Critique panel um, when he addressed uh, Milchman and uh, Omar, um, and he said, look, they're just anarchists, right? So let's unpack that a little bit, because what Spencer <coughs> mentioned is important. The degree to which Moish is a Marxist, and the degree to which Adolf's a Marxist, and certainly the degree to which Spartans, the Spartacists are Marxists, they're holding on to 1848, meaning, you know, the, from a Marxist perspective, we're living in the epoch of revolution, meaning ever since 1848, the world stands under the task of proletarian socialism, which means that ever since 1848, it is possible and it is necessary, it could be the case and it should be the case that proletarian socialism is brought into political effect. Um, and so that's, you know, in a sense of, from a Marxist perspective, you know, it literally is, how do you stand with regards to the revolution? And it goes back to 1848. Are you with the June insurgents in 1848? 
If you're with the June insurgents in 1848, you're on the left. If you're not, you're part of the counter-revolution. And anarchists are with the June insurgents in 1848. I mean, this is what anarchists and Marxists have in common. That the, you know, we're living in the revolutionary struggle against the counter-revolution ever since 1848. That's the vision. If you hear like Rosa Luxemburg or Lenin when they say we're revolutionaries, what they mean is that they are carrying forward the revolutionary struggle that was beaten back in 1848, but that is still ongoing. Now, wouldn't a lot of liberals? No, because the liberals put down the June insurgents. That's the point. Adolf Thier. No, no, liberals. It's but just, it this is like Marxism 101. Right? This is Marxism 101, meaning the liberals are on the side of the February Revolution in 1848 and not the June insurgency. They're not. Right? That's the point. So, um, now a lot of people who are really liberal but consider themselves socialists, sure. That's are, what I'm saying. Yeah, but that's something else. We're talking about people's avowed, avowed politics. Okay. Um, you know, in other words, if you talk to Jay Bernstein, right, we will say, no, Jacobins went too far. Hegel had a critique of the Jacobins, right? That's a liberal perspective, right? Socialism is a mistake. It's Jacobinism. Um, or to coward, right? Now, so, in this respect, um, you know, this, you know, Aaron, I want to just address you. This convention is not representative of the full spectrum of platypuses engagements. It's never meant to be. It's not our annual conference. It's not a conference. It's a members convention, and we have some window dressing on that convention. Namely, we do some, we take the opportunity of the assembly of our members to do a crash course of education on the current state of the left. And that's what the public events of the last two days amount to. It's not our conference. It's not our conference, not at all. Um, it is basically, okay, we've got all of our members here, what do we wanna show them about the left and our engagements in the last year and ongoing into the next year, um, which is quite different. Um, You're gonna make a different point about the obscurity of 1848. Oh yes, the obscurity of 1848. Okay, so for Moish, right, there are, you know, basically, uh, and there are other characters, there's like T.J. Clark who's an anarchist, he's a situationist anarchist, that will rehearse this in leftist discourse today, another 60s generation ago. There are three dates for that generation, 1848, 1917, and 1968. And there's a way in which the anarchist imagination thinks that 1917 uh, interferes with the 1848 tradition. It's a derailment of the 1848 tradition that is regained in 1968. Mm -hmm. right, that's the idea. The idea is, 1917 was a detour, is a hijacking, like Noam Chomsky, it's a hijacking of the revolution, right, by these bourgeois intellectuals who just want to make us more capitalist. And, <laughs> and in 1968, we finally put paid to that because, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know, it's bohemian, it's, 18, it's you know, vintage 1840s bohemianism on the barricades again, right? It's not this militarized Bolshevik vanguard party anymore. Right, it's the people rebelling again the way they did in 1848 or in 1871, right? Um, but you know, the essential Marxist point, um, in other words, where Marxism diverges from anarchism, is to say, uh, yes, the revolution is going to be a capitalist revolution, and you're either going to recognize it as such or you're not. 
And what moist, what moist agonizes over that Spencer was just talking about is he's both on the side of 1968 and he's not, right? Meaning he knows his marks well enough to know that what the 1968 generation did was not continue 1848 and the struggle for socialism so much as bring about neoliberal capitalism. He knows that, right? That's why he knows that history since 1968 has been regressive. He has his pithy line, like prematurely post-proletarian. Yeah, prematurely post-proletarian, prematurely post-capitalist, which is actually a more insidious form of capitalism. And, you know, Moish is a good anti-postmodernist. You know, not only Adolf, but Moish is also an anti-postmodernist. Um, and he knows, look, that, you know, what the rebellion of 1968 brought about was a new and, you know, in certain respects, deeply problematic form of capitalism. Um, and, that's, you know, he gets that from his reading of Marx. He, he gets that. Um, and again, that's maybe just to put the final point on it in terms of uh, our generational experience. Our generational experience, we don't have 68. No, I wasn't born in 68. Spencer wasn't born in 68. We don't have 68 um, as an experience. What we have it is as canon or as doxa. Right? And our generation does not have the experience of 1968, which is a rich experience in its own respect. It is a rich experience, which is demonstrated by the Spartacists, by Adolf, and by Moish. You know, these are complicated figures. They did experience something. What our generation has is just a worshiping of a status quo. Right? They have a kind of rehearsed kind of uh, notion of revolution and rebellion that is actually an affirmation of the status quo. And, that, and they call it the left, or they call it revolution, or they call it emancipation, <coughs> or they call it Marxism. Um, and the inoculation, right, uh, the inoculation is against that, is against the naturalization that this is what the left is, that this is what revolution is, um, et cetera. And that's what we were talking about before about the simulacrum effect. I, I just wanted to comment, first of all, I, I don't want to unpack it, but I, I think that I've somewhat misinterpreted in terms of my comment about liberals in 1848. In some ways, I meant the opposite of what I was thinking. Of. But uh, that's the side joke. I want to make two comments about, one is about bourgeois intellectuals, and the other is about postmodernism. I mean, one of the things that I like about Platypus is that it respects bourgeois intellectuals. It does not the pretense that, you know, hatred of bourgeois intellectuals, whether the left is in some way opposed to some kind of hostility to bourgeois intellectuals, um, often put out of course by bourgeois intellectuals. Right, it's a self-hatred of bourgeois Right, and, and so, so in that sense that the, the emphasis, and this was part of the discussion with Henry, I think that like part of the emphasis on Platypus actually is of the necessary role that quote, bourgeois intellectuals, some of whom are of proletarian origin, but that's that necessarily play. That it's not just about the masses, the workers, etc. That there's a fundamental way. The other thing has to do with postmodern, which is a complicated problem. So postmodernism, when sort of Chris and I were Hampshire, had a when we were all in college, it, it had like still a, a militancy, an edge to it. 
So postmodernism, in a sense, has, it was still insurrectionary. But postmodernism, in the sort of more extreme sense, has died. But it's died in the sense that it's become part of a common, a cultural common sense. And it's also a problem in terms of platypus, because there are subtle ways in which platypus itself has absorbed postmodern. And we are very aware of coming after modernity, after a modern life. And we're, we're aware of that in some respect in a nostalgic sense, but we are ourselves a product of a postmodern sensibility, much as we hate postmodern. Yeah, I mean, I'll underscore that just with, um, with reference to, I mean, if we know, Spencer already invoked Rorty, um, and, you know, our experience in Hampshire was that we were dealing with a lot of 60s leftists who were Marxists, who were trained in Marxism and in Frankfurt School Marxism, and very much aware of this kind of thing. Ekbal, not so much a Frankfurt schooler, um, but Ekbal will suffice to, uh, to demonstrate the point. Um, namely, that it was around the time that we were in college that people who th thought of themselves as Marxist leftists, intellectuals in an academic sense, finally got around to reading Foucault. They were like, oh, yeah, it's kind of Foucault does have something to say. Like they, they weren't, you know, they were kind of a little bit latecomers to Foucault, but they were like, okay, Chris, you're interested in Marxism, but have you read Foucault? There might be something there. You know, it was like new, right? Even though it wasn't new at all, it was still being offered up as new in a way that now it's not new. Now it's like, oh, you don't, you don't, you haven't read Foucault, you're stupid. Or, you know, you know, <laughs> you're a reactionary. Right. And, um, you know, and that's very different. It's very different. In other words, this was like, oh, have you heard of this new thing, Foucault? You know? And it might be more radical than Marxism. And I remember Ekbal making a remark about um, Edward Said and about Orientalism, um, which again was new for us. Right? It wasn't canonical the way it is for you guys, it was new. And it was like, oh, okay, this Foucauldian treatment and this Foucauldian critique of Marx on the question of East and West. And, you know, very deliberately Foucauldian. And, you know, I remember Ekbal being like, well, yeah, there might be something to it. Even though he sort of constitutionally kind of rejected it, he entertained it. And he kind of wanted his students to think, well, maybe this is the way people are going to be thinking about these things from now on. Maybe, you know, I'm too much of an old style Marxist. Like that was Ekbal's attitude. Ekbal was, was you know, kind of this, you know, kind of pleasant guy and not polemical. But he was like, yeah, I'm a Marxist, but you know, maybe people in the future are going to be Foucauldians, and so you know, maybe I should talk to my students about this Edward Said treatment of Orientalism. It was new. It wasn't like it was new. Jeremy. Um, so two questions. One, I just wanted you guys to articulate a little better because I, I worry sometimes. You know, like basically there were a lot of jokes made about the 60s left, but and, and, you know, common sentiment. Um, but I just wanted you to be a little clearer. Like it's not any less clear to me that the, you know, the left in 1917 ended up reconstituting the domination of capital just as much as the 1960s. So like if you could just state like very clearly like what, what the real core problem was or how you came to be aware of like the core thing beyond, I mean maybe it is just a matter of taste to some degree. And then the second question is that the story, the stories you told, while they seem to affect the, you know, rehearse the raison d'etre of like a project in general, really didn't speak much about the what Chris you opened it up as saying this was meant to speak about, which was the particular form, right? Like why you guys are on the board of directors, or why the, the corporation is structured the way it is, or you know, so that is I'm, I'm still missing that from the, the stories you've told or about why the Platypus project exists in general. 
in the first place, how you get to why you guys need to be where you are, why the organization is like it is. That might be a bigger question. I will. I mean, to hear that. Yeah, if I can start on that, yeah, I, I think that the difference, the, I think there's a huge difference. Our, I think that the generation of 1917, at some level, gave rise to the necessity of the new left. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it came to crisis in a way that we have to pay attention to. The new left never comes to crisis. Yeah. Right. And it's that that is the experience of, of the 90s and 2000s zeros. Right? It's that recognition that this is never going to stop by adopting the same methods of trying to build a party. Yeah, there are lots of criticisms. The Spartacist League, Moish, these, these are all outliers. Even Rorty in his old ideal way, you know, where like this is a bunch of fortunate what they're teaching these students, and it's all apolitical, right? Um, what we saw was the anti-political character of the new left in its degeneration. And that reveals something about the task that had, that had, that had been faced and discarded in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, do you see it in the Mark Rudd interview that Spencer conducted? Where Mark Rudd, you know, this <coughs> essential American new leftist, in mean, a kind of a really absurd kind of way. Still, he said, "Look, you know, in 1968, we thought we were carrying forward the revolution of 1917." It's almost shocking, right? It's almost—it's—he's clearer about that now than he was probably at the time, in certain respects, or certainly in an intervening period. Um, and in a way that, when our generation says, "Yeah, we're carrying forward the 1968 generation," you know, revolution. 1968 revolution, then you need to hear that they're carrying forward the counter-revolution, right? <laughs> this, it just is this, you know, completely counter-revolutionary thing in a way that, in Mark wrote in 1968 saying, we were trying to renew and carry forward the 1917 revolution, that's not, you know, and it, that's not counter-revolutionary. I mean, it's a problematic, ambiguous kind of attempt on their part. But when people say, yeah, you know, we're carrying forward the 1968 uh, revolution, it means something wholly different with respect to all sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say just for, I mean, I think that, I think 1917 on a global historical scale, I mean, in a way, the culmination of that experience was World War II. I mean, it was fascism. Nazism, yeah. Fascism and Stalinism and the global convulsion of the defeat of Nazi Germany with the Soviet Union and Western powers, and the sense of like then the post-war world and this huge break, which in a way finally starts to be processed in the 60s. So I think that the 60s is a moment of processing after the fact, an attempt to split the 30s and 40s, the 20s, 30s, and very imperfectly. I think that the subsequent history, which has actually been longer by now, or as long, it's not, it's not the same thing. So that part of the problem of 68 is that the revolution is this revolution, if there's a revolution, it can be trans viewed as a revolution of everyday life, right? And that's seen as like an advantage, but it's the, it's the sense of the epochal character of the the world historical character of, the, of, a, of an external transformation. So that people who defend like the revolutionary character of 1968 
are defending like the way homosexuality is perceived or the way race is perceived, or it's this sense that there's this kind of ever growing gradual improvement in consciousness. So the paradox is that the, the defense of 68 actually becomes this kind of new Whiggish view of history. There's this like <laughs> ever growing progress in the world. And like most of us, I think, or at least I have that feeling, that we know that that's not really true. That we're not, you know, sort of steadily getting more enlightened. And, and I think that that's where that old, the old ideas I was talking about last night, the old ideas of, you know, a, a revolution that represents an epochal shift in sort of the, the world historical scheme, and talking about, thinking about history and politics in those ways, that it's, it's the extent to which that has become completely obscure to people, that 68 represents the counter-revolution. It's not what happened in 68 was a counter-revolution. It's not that the certain social changes coming out of 68 are not good things, but it's that, that people have lost sight of the deeply obvious, and that the deeply obvious has become profoundly obscure. Just a last thing. Um, you know, another thing that, that, that Mark brought interview reminds me of, but it's just any, anyone will tell you this, which is that that generation, if they weren't red diaper babies, looked to the red diaper babies. Yeah. It was the Communist Party and its Trotskyist internal critique, or loyal opposition, that, you know, that, that came to crisis in its self-reproduction to produce the new left. This is why Adorno in the late 60s is talking about anarchism returning as a ghost. Right. Right? Because he's saying, you know, what Chris called in last year's convention, the century of Marxism is coming to an end. Right? That, you know, what Marx said in the most widely uh, printed document that he ever wrote namely the Civil War in France, right? Which is that anarchism died in the Paris Commune. Proudhon was world historically defeated by the formation of the dictatorship of the proletariat. I am vindicated. And then he's been, and then, and then you know, he becomes a world historical figure years after his death on that basis. That's what ends. You know, that historical inheritance of mantle of revolution by Marxism is what ends with the new left, with the failure of the new left generation in the 1970s. Right. I want to get back to Jeremy's point on Soren. That will be the last question. So the, the justification, uh, yeah, I guess I didn't make it clear. Um, you know, I wish it weren't true, but I think that it's a considered judgment on my part. And this is where actually Spencer and, and Richard would um, acknowledge it, but not spontaneously think that this is the case, the way I do. Um, you know, in other words, I am the greatest dissenter. No, but I think that the three of us need to be on the Orcom for the time being, uh, because of an essential role that we have to play. But both Spencer and Richard would say that they're the most dispensable members of the Orcom. Mm -hmm. right? 
And the only reason that I say that they're not is not because you know I want a plurality of my friends on the Orcom, but rather because my role in Platypus is deeply informed by my dialogue with these two, and I want them to speak for themselves rather than through me. Right. So, um, in other words, I don't want to be channeling them. I want them to have you know a full voice uh, representing themselves. And this is where we represent the membership and we don't represent the membership. So the analogy that I would raise is the Frankfurt Institute. Why not? Um, and Adorno writes to Marcuse in 1969, he said, you know, making the claim that, look, it's the same old institute. Um, and Marcuse is saying, no, it's not the same old institute. You guys have, you know, state support. And, you know, how could it possibly be the same thing as in the 30s? And, you know, Adorno says, well, that's true, but look at what we're faced with. Whereas in the 30s, we were a spontaneously grouped bunch of intellectuals who came together, who all had background, and we came together out of common agreement. Now the Institute is about training up new people. We have to train up um, our own colleagues. Right? And if you keep in mind who he meant by that, Habermas, right? they, they weren't really able to do that. Right? <laughs> Um, and uh, Platypus is not the spontaneous coming together of like-minded people. It is the training up of our colleagues, right, from scratch, right? The membership of Platypus, um, for whom the project is going to be real or it's not going to survive. In other words, it's, Platypus is not what we think it is, it's what you guys make of it. Nonetheless, we are training you up. In other words, we're not, it's not like people are you know, bringing a great deal of prior experience. Now, that's a kind of a you know, sharp claim. So why is that the sharp claim? Because even the degree to which you guys are bringing prior experience, what you're not bringing is this hinge generation experience of the 80s and 90s. That is really crucial. And therefore, there are things that are visible to us that are invisible to you. It's as simple as that. In other words, that you can only see by virtue of us making you see them. Uh, without us making you see it, it will be just invisible. You won't see it. Sorry. Now, to translate that a bit into the process of the orcom, <clears throat> the orcom would be, I, I think, much more difficult for other members on it if Richard and I weren't on it. Because they would face the full force of Chris's rationality. <laughs> Which I think would be difficult to, you know, I think it would be very difficult to mediate. Unbuffered. I think it would also be very difficult to mediate if they knew that either Richard or I disagree with Chris, but we weren't there. Mm -hmm. Like if I were to say, well, I've had this conversation. Because Chris will represent it. That's what he means by saying he wants us on there, right? Is he wants us to say we agree or we disagree for ourselves having heard everything, right? Rather than just, because what he'll otherwise would say is, well, I talked to Richard yesterday. Because right. that's actually the way he thinks about it. The way he thinks about it is through regular conversations with us. And so it's actually a democratic impulse of typing. Well, I, I, mean, I, I, I think that there's a general consensus that three of us should be in, in the membership. I don't, I don't think it, that we should be. But in terms of the way the outcome actually functions, it should be pointed out that Spencer and I actually talk the least on the ORCOM. I talk the least, Spencer secondly. So most of the conversation on the actual ORCOM call 
actually has been Chris Patton's death. And part of that has to do with the way the ORCOM functions. So they're kind of like what's happened is the ORCOM has had to split, well, in different ways, split in two different parts. One part has to do with an organizational leadership, which Spencer and I don't really have that much to do with. And the other is kind of a strategic discussion. A pedagogical, strategic leadership where we have a big role to play. But so I think part of, um, I, I, I thought, I didn't think we were going to talk about the ORCOM like that. But I think part of the question of the slate has to do with integrating the question of how the organization should be run in terms of integrating those two sides, the organizational and the strategic plan. And I think that should actually be saved for a different discussion in which the representatives of the two slates should present their views on why each slate would be better. Um, yeah, but that's, yeah, for those. That, that's really a separate discussion. Sorry. Sorry? Uh, my, my question is, is in the spirit of Jeremy's second question, although not specifically with regard to the justification of the three of you on the ORCOM, um, but more with regard to the, the stated purpose of, of your discussion today, mm -hmm. which was to attempt to sort of distill or identify a certain character of platypus as it exists today. And so in, in your comments, you, you provided us with uh, sort of the prehistory of platypus through uh, more or less autobiographical lenses. Um, I'm wondering then if you could just talk a little bit about the, the moment at which, uh, Richard addressed it some in, in terms of both sort of a moment of hope as well as disbelief, but the moment when you know several students of Chris's, myself included, when when this sort of became something other than a journal project project among amongst peers, how did that change? Both, I mean, individually, your own understandings of, of what Platypus was, say, your own understandings of the slogan "The Left Is Dead, Long Live the Left." How did these things change both? Okay. Both looking backwards as well as looking forwards, and, and where does that place us Okay, today? Well, well, let me, so first of all, the fact that the journal project died was actually a wonderful thing. Because like, what actually happened was much better than our expectations. So like, the organization that developed that we had not anticipated or thought possible was something that became possible because of Chris's students. So that's when the critical mass developed. The other thing is that when we started to formulate it as a project, okay, and this, I, I think the question about the slogan, the left is dead, it's not so much about the slogan, but it's in the process of the pedagogy, that one realizes how much one learns either formally as pedagogy, I being perhaps the most informal pedagogy of the three people up here, but there's a process of trying to explain things to people that one comes one shifts in oneself. So that going through the reading group was revelatory, not because the texts were revelatory, but because the way people discussed them. I mean, one of the things that was most revelatory to me was like around one of, like the three R's, I mean, right? Resistance, revolution, reform. It was revolution, revelatory, not revolutionary to me, but in a way revolutionary was that the most obscure of these three categories was actually the same. And, I, and that actually represented like a profound shift in what people expected. And so, so 
I remember one, among many of my sort of earlier, mid, early platypus, like platypus existing as an organization, when I was talking to Chris very frequently, much more than I do now. And I remember like expressing astonishment, like with the sense that there was a, there was a generation, difference of generational sensibility. And I, I often feel that people in platypus, the bulk of platypus, Candidate political and zero, that, that, those, that you guys have like, on the one hand, certain ideas are much easier to accept. And on the other hand, certain things that to me just seem kind of intuitively obvious, one has to struggle to explain. And um, it's sometimes like there isn't that process of sort of conveying across like the gulf of some sensibility. So part of platypus is transmitting a sensibility, but part of it is also in the untransmittability of the sensibility, one reflects on what is essential. Mm -hmm. There's like, there's actually a, 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 a you know, childhood's end, like an Arthur C. Clarke story, where people, it's a great book. It's a great book. And you know, so the people are immortal, but they live these like physical lives and then they trans they go through all their memories and they edit their memories and they're sort of put in this memory bank and then they're sort of reborn. And there's a process in Platypus, which is a transmission of sensibility, but that tr tr transmission is also an editing of what in this history is essential what experiences need to be conveyed and what can be conveyed. So it's not the, like, the, like, uh, like the, the way 1848 is presented. Like that, that is one example of something that shifts in terms of the narrative because of the experience of Platypus. The way one thinks about 1968, but many, the way one would think about the 1980, that there are these subtle shifts in us, not just in the. So, so I don't have the feeling that platypus was something that we created and then mm -hmm. people came to it. Mm -hmm. It was created in the process of certain of a certain sensibility looking for an outlet, and platypus became the outlet. And we could explain certain historical things, but the real genesis of platypus was in the process of trying to cope with the history and trying to transmit it. So it's not the case that Chris and I founded Platypus alone in our walks, and then people came and we introduced this idea. That, that's completely false. Platypus really was founded in the mid-late zeros. Because before then, it really would have been impossible to found it. It's not that like Chris and I could have, like in the mid-90s, said, oh, the left is dead, one was the left, let's found Platypus. It would have been impossible. There had to be a period where something could germinate that so a new type of sense. That's what I'm asking, which I mean, I take that for granted. Mm. What I'm asking is, what, what was it there that happened? And, and, and why did it happen at the time that it did? Sandy, we're moving. Yeah, I, I can say that. The other thing, in addition to writing Chris about, you know, we need this platypus statement from London was, you know, one of the things that Chris and I have done is, in a sense, um, done a dry run of platypus, 
by a very intensively pedagogical relationship with our kids. And I felt my ability to, to, to sense to, to talk to Sunni breaking down. And instead, oh, in London, in London, and instead, you know, the, the, the kind of the, you know, the one thing that I wanted to say is that I can't not stand the fucking left, right? Which is why I really, in a sense, came into uh, to platypus by writing that article on Christopher Hitchens, because that, to me, crystallized the sense of watching, you know, the the London left. Uh, in all of its wretchedness. I mean, I remember going to these marches, and we are Hamas, and all of this, and just thinking, you know, this is absolute misery, and this is the one person of that generation who is saying, I haven't left the left, the left has disappeared, the left has abandoned me. And I felt like that was the authority of that generation. It's the Lebanon War, summer of 2006, right? Yeah, yeah. It, didn't, it didn't, to me, it didn't matter how fucked up his politics were, or who he was having dinner with, where, uh, to me, the issue was, this is the clearest statement of that primal sense of not only the wretchedness, but the way in which it's calling into question history. Maybe the other thing to say about that, uh, if you say that it's a dry run of platypus, it's a dry run of platypus because you went to the conference, so the SWP conference, and witnessed it. Meaning, like, you know, we had had these conversations. I mean, Athia is different because Athia has experience on the Pakistani left prior to all of this. But Sunni, not so much, right? And so I felt like, okay, we've been talking to Sunni about this stuff, but it only, like, came home when it was in the flesh presented. It's like, here you go, you know? Marxism 2006, this is it. And that's the formative experience. And uh, Festival of Resistance. Festival of Resistance. <laughs> and, um, you know, and the, what I just told, you know, Richard, and I routinely tell Richard, you know, about, like, Richard's always saying, well, pedagogy, you know, the problems of pedagogy. And I'm like, well, I don't know how to teach this stuff other than how we're doing it. Which doesn't mean through the reading room. It means through our public activities. And it means through our experience of the left in and through Platypus. Namely, our attendance at left events, our witnessing, you know, it as an ethnographic anthropological phenomenon, um, and also our hosting the conversation. But that's okay, what I meant. Meant. Right. I meant anthropological <laughs> in the Nietzsche sense, right? Human all too human. Um, okay. So let's. Um, I don't know if that quite got to it. Um, uh, yeah, because I think that we've been pulling in too many different directions and going too long. All right, so we'll take a break. Um, <coughs> 2.30.